0: Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swineherds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. When people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out of sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. So our passage this morning involves a nude gentleman who lives in a cemetery and sometimes has a tendency to become so violent that the townspeople chain him up. But the demons that possess him are so powerful that he keeps breaking the chains and running wild. And we haven't even gotten to the crazy part yet. (laughs) Jesus meets this guy. He addresses the demons possessing him and asks their name, and they use a Roman military term, legion, to say who they are. A legion of Roman soldiers would be roughly 6,000 infantry, 120 cavalry, and a handful of special troops just thrown in for good measure. So, in case his wardrobe and his choice of residence didn't emphasize this enough, this guy has it pretty bad, doesn't he? No? Yes. Yeah. This guy would draw some attention. Whatever else was going on at a given time, if this guy arrives on the scene, suddenly all eyes are going to be on him. Now, the demons that possess this poor guy know that Jesus is about to cast them out, so they strike up a deal with Jesus. And they say, hey, we don't want to go back to the abyss. Don't cast us there. So uh, there's this herd of pigs up on the hillside. Maybe you could just cast us into the pigs. And Jesus obliges, and the demons enter the pigs, which then decide to rush off a cliff into a lake and drown. Let's pause, shall we? Because I think that when we hear a story like this, a few things might happen. Some of us might hear the words demon possession and then just check out right then and there. Or we might hear the details of this story and say, clearly this passage doesn't have anything to do with me because I don't know any naked people who live in cemeteries. I don't know what your neighborhood is like. But this certainly puts a little bit of distance between us and the story, doesn't it? You all don't seem that shocked by this. I am kind of wondering about your neighborhoods now. Or... We might hear this story and we might boil it down to just this very simple message of Jesus has power over demons, but we kind of already knew that. Or we might belong to PETA, and so we have some issues with the treatment of pigs in this passage. But whatever, whenever we encounter a story like this, it's important not to dismiss it for any of the reasons we might have. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We shouldn't dismiss passages like this because we might end up missing something. So just bear with me. Uh, Don't check out just yet and take a nap. Do we have a deal? I'm looking at some of the people who regularly take naps. (laughs) We good? (laughs) So we're told that this event is set in a place called Garissa. Which is interesting for a few different reasons, but one of the things that I found especially interesting about Gerasa is that when they did an archaeological excavation of this area, no pig bones were found. And so we have this passage that involves pigs, pigs in a group called swine herders, but it's set in a place where we have no evidence that there ever were any pigs or swine herders. And I find this interesting because it means that this story isn't necessarily about the pigs or swine herders themselves. Instead, it's about what hypothetical pigs or swine herders might represent, and what did they represent? Well, Jesus and his disciples were a bunch of good Jewish kids from the other side of the lake in Galilee, which is often referred to as the 1st century Bible Belt. So what are a bunch of good Jewish kids from the 1st century Bible Belt going to think about pigs and swine herders? Unclean, exactly. These guys would be considered unclean. So, pigs aside, because as we said, it's not necessarily about the pigs, but what the pigs represent— What we have here in this passage are, by cultural standards, a town full of unclean people doing unclean things. And in this town with unclean people doing unclean things, we find a man who's especially unclean, a demon-possessed guy who runs around naked in a cemetery. And I say that he's especially unclean because he's not just possessed by demons, but his skin, which... As we've established, he's showing an awful lot of. His skin is probably coming into contact with dead bodies. And skin-to-skin contact with dead bodies in this time and place would have made you particularly unclean. But then suddenly Jesus heals this guy. And the townspeople go to look for him, and they find him—this is an exact quote here, I love this— they find him clothed and in his right mind which shows that the expectations for this guy are pretty low, aren't they? (laughs) Try saying that to somebody next time they ask how you're doing. Oh, I'm clothed and in my right mind, thank you very much. (laughs) How are you? So not only is he possessed by a legion of demons and living in a cemetery, but he's also someone for whom it's miraculous that he is just clothed and in his right mind. So in case I didn't emphasize it enough already, or in case the text didn't emphasize it enough already, this guy was really bad off. And everybody seemed to know about it. So... How did the townspeople respond when they finally see this guy clothed and in his right mind? Did they throw Jesus a parade? Or do they throw the formerly demon-possessed guy a party to welcome him back to sanity? No. We're told they're afraid. They're afraid. And then when more people show up and they hear that it was Jesus who healed this guy, they actually throw Jesus out of town and they send him back to the other side of the lake. And this isn't the response I think any one of us would expect from people who witness a miraculous healing. Is it? I mean, isn't this a good thing? Isn't it a positive thing that this guy has finally been restored and he finally has his life back? I think it is. In theory. But not necessarily for the townspeople. Because, like we said, this demon-possessed guy would have been the center of attention everywhere he went. He was the most unclean person in the city. But now that he's been healed, that job is open for somebody else. And that's especially bad news for this town that we've already established is full of unclean people doing unclean things. They need this guy. (laughs) They need this guy around, and they need him possessed and naked and living in a cemetery because as long as he's doing that, they can say, I might be bad, but at least I'm not as bad as Captain Crazy Pants over there. I might be unclean, but look at that guy in the cemetery. But now that he's healed, suddenly their uncleanliness is front and center. Now that they don't have anyone else to point to as the token sinner, they have to take a look at their own lives and their own uncleanliness, and really, who wants to do that? Think of it this way. I love watching competitive cooking shows. Anybody with me? Chopped, British Bake Off, yes, the Shishniak family, majorly into it. Worst Cooks in America. I was watching one of these shows uh, a couple days ago. And one of the chefs was getting ready to be judged for his food with all of the other competitors. And he knew he did a horrible job. So at one point he said, my only hope now is that someone else messed up worse than I did. (laughs) And that's what we're talking about here. Because if someone is messing up worse than we are, our mistakes go unnoticed. Our mistakes can fly under the radar. Or think about when you're driving and suddenly you see a police car behind you. There are very few things in the world that make you have a philosophical, ethical conversation with yourself, like having a police car behind you. Am I right about this? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have ever thought this when you see a police officer in your rearview mirror? Again, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have thought something along these lines? Yes, I'm speeding, but that guy next to me is going faster than I am, and in fact, he just passed me, so I'm good. (laughs) Right? As long as there's someone going faster than me, as long as there's somebody around transgressing worse than I am, my transgressions go unnoticed. I remember at a previous church, someone pulled me aside after one of the services and said, Jeff, all of your sermons are about grace, 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 good news, good news, good news. You need to focus more on sin, you need to call out some sinners. And I asked what they meant, and they said, Well, the Bible talks about sin, and there is some sin in this congregation. There are some sinners in this congregation. It needs to be addressed, and people need to be called out. And I said, Okay, I'll give it a try if you want. How do you sin? She said, What do you mean? And I said, Well, I'd love to call you out next Sunday. How do you sin? she said, no, no, not me. I mean the sinners, the sinners. And I said, don't you sin? Aren't you a sinner? And she said, the Apostle Paul says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I said, perfect. How should I call you out next Sunday? <laughs> Never got a straight answer on that one. We're fine with the idea of sin or uncleanliness as long as it's somebody else's sin or uncleanliness that we're talking about. Because when we do that, We can ignore our own. This is why the townspeople are so afraid when the demon-possessed man is healed. They can no longer say, at least I'm not as bad as that unclean naked guy in the cemetery. The town full of unclean people doing unclean things has suddenly lost its cover. I think that we all fall into this trap of looking to other people's shortcomings to feel better about ourselves. Like, I spend a lot of time listening to people discuss the Bible, and sometimes I'll hear this accusation thrown out. That person just picks and chooses which passages they want, and then they just throw out the rest. Have you ever heard this accusation before? Yeah. Well, we all do this, but this accusation is comforting for the people who use it, because as long as we can point to other people who do it, we can feel better about the fact that we do it. Or another way that we might do this is become experts in other people's sins. We can become very good at pointing out everybody's shortcomings in our lives. Why do we do this? I think one of the reasons is so that we can cover up or justify our own personal shortcomings. Or we can become experts on individual sins. So there's an ongoing study being done about clergy health specifically United Methodist Clergy Health, specifically United Methodist Clergy Health in North Carolina. So it's a study about, like, my health, which is a little weird. In 2012, this study found that United Methodist Clergy in North Carolina have higher rates of obesity than average North Carolinians. So think about what this means. As a denomination, right now, we're having a global debate about the sinfulness of a particular practice— And I want to ask, is this a conversation about gluttony? Of course it's not. It's about something else. (laughs) Because as long as we're talking about something else and becoming experts on that, we don't have to reflect on our own shortcomings. We are the unclean townspeople doing unclean things. And when we suddenly don't have someone else to point to and say, but look how bad they are, it can be really scary. Now, all of this would sound like horrible news if we ended here, because if we ended here, the big takeaway would be, so everyone go home and stop thinking about what a miserable sinner your neighbor is, and instead, spend the next week contemplating what a miserable sinner you are, and go in peace. <laughs> There's a better message in this passage, and I think it has to do with the fact that pointing out other people's faults is exhausting. It's exhausting, and keeping track of how you compare to everyone else on some arbitrary scale of holiness may appear to make us feel better about ourselves, but it will wear us down and, quite frankly, make us horrible company. (laughs) But the Jesus that the unclean townspeople kicked out of their city is the same Jesus who died for us while we were still sinners. And when we take Jesus' forgiveness seriously, it means that we can take the fact that Jesus forgives us seriously. You can take the fact that Jesus forgives you seriously. And this means that we are freed from the tyranny of needing to keep a mental list of why everyone in our lives is worse than we are. It means that instead we can focus on, I don't know, loving them? It means that rather than looking at our friends and our family and our neighbors as problems to solve, we can look at them as people to love as we're loved and be gracious towards, as grace has been shown to us. The good news here is that you can stop trying to figure out how to be better than everyone else. And you can stop trying to figure out how to make yourself more holy or more loved or more acceptable in comparison to others. You're already loved and accepted. (coughs) You're already loved and accepted, so you're free to rejoice in the love and acceptance of others. Amen? Let's stand together.